reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, starting with verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but God has come to test you. The of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, starting with verse 4b. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. And so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all of this, or have arrived, already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. The gospel according to St. Matthew. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. 
Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants, who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and anyone to whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. The Gospel of the Lord. So good to be with you all today, as it is every Sunday. What a joy it is. This week, we continue to hear the story of Israel. So this is the time after their rescue from Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea, but before they've entered the Promised Land. It's this season that, as you may know, lasted for 40 years or higher generation. It's in the desert, in this in-between place, that God gives the Ten Commandments to Israel. But the story begins, before we get all the Ten Commandments, the story begins with a reminder of what God has done, that God has rescued them from Egypt and from slavery. So God's people are defined as a people. What makes them a people is God's rescue. This is what forms their identity. God has proven God's action and character, and that's the foundation that God gives as he lays out these commands for them. Now, as Christians, whenever we're faced with the Old Testament law, so whenever we read this, especially something like the Ten Commandments, we naturally ask, what does this mean for us? How does this, what does this have to do with Jesus? In fact, some of us take a simplistic approach. We don't need laws. We have a relationship with Jesus. But when we reject the Ten Commandments out of hand, we actually dismiss the whole story that we're part of. We often fail to remember that God's character is consistent. It's not just wavering all over the place and changing his mind all over the place. The same God who heard Israel's cry is the same God who revealed God's self in Jesus. The same God who delivered Israel from slavery is the same God who delivered us from sin and death through Christ's death and resurrection. So how do we think about the Old Testament law? And how do we think about these Ten Commandments? This gets really um, complicated in the world as you've got some groups that want to post the Ten Commandments all over the place and in courthouses and all that stuff, and other people get upset. I don't know that the first group knows why they want to post the Ten Commandments. I don't know the second group knows why they're upset. (laughs) Just all the, the complicated stuff. This serves as kind of a totem for us or kind of a representation of something that we think is deeper. But what I want to suggest today is the Ten Commandments show us something about the character of God. And then they point us to Jesus. They point us to Jesus. Generally, we don't like being bound by laws. We want to push back. We tend to think that freedom 
and laws are opposites of each other, right? If I have freedom, then I'm not bound by anything. I don't have any laws. But that's not exactly true. Because the reality is in our world, we're all bound to something. We all have something that guides us. What many of us think of as freedom is just following our desires or whims or whatever we want. But that actually is a law. You're bound by your whims or your desires. It's possible and it's actually really common to bind oneself to the law of our own impulses, whatever I want, and that becomes the law that we're bound to. But the law of God is the law that brings ultimate freedom because it brings life. One example of this is healthy parents want their kids to grow up and learn what it means to be part of the family. So I want my kids to grow up and learn something about what it means to be a sharp. (laughs) These are some things we value. These are some things that are important to us. I want my children to learn to be people of character and love and generosity and acceptance. Sometimes my children don't act in the ways I desire for them. Sometimes I don't act that way. (laughs) That's why we as parents have to establish rules, patterns of behavior, even if they don't always understand why the rules exist. Now, of course, as parents, we hope that our rules are not arbitrary. We didn't just come up with them. They're intentional. We may, for example, limit screen time because we don't want our children to be solely focused on their own entertainment. (laughs) Parents are nudging your children. That's wonderful. We may tell them to apologize their friends when they hurt their feelings because we want them to learn about repentance and forgiveness. These aren't arbitrary things. These are boundary markers for how to live as a child who is part of a family. It is also often appropriate for parents to allow consequences as part of behavior that's not consistent with boundaries. This raises a question. So in a healthy family, does a child's identity as a family member depend on their ability to keep the rules? No, by no means. Now, a child could reject their identity as part of the family. They could reject that foundation of their identity, but the foundation of their identity is not in their behavior. It's in their parents' love for them. The foundation of Israel's identity, even as he gives them laws and commandments, those laws and commandments and their ability to keep up with them are not the foundation of their identity. The foundation is God has set them free. This is who God is. And therefore, this is the way to live into that. Here are the boundary markers and the way to live as the people of God. And yet, they're hard-hearted. In the Ten Commandments, God gives them a guide for how to grow up to be who they are, his kids. They're called to imitate God. The Latin word that's used for this is imatio dei, or the imitation of God. So let's look at these quickly, one by one. You shall have no other gods before me. God wants to be in an exclusive relationship with Israel. They will soon be living near the Canaanites. And this is a group of folks who seek the help of their gods to make their crops grow and their animals and families to be fertile. Israel is not to look to those other gods, but to rely on Yahweh for all of their needs. It might cause us to ask, where do we turn in times of need? Times where we're not seeing the fruitfulness or the, uh, what we would expect out of life, where do we turn? And in what ways is it radical for the people of God to declare that our trust is in God alone? 
You shall not make for yourself an idol. They're not to make statues and declare that those statues are God. This command is countercultural because everybody in the, in the ancient world did this. Their gods were the ones that they made. It's not that physicality is foreign to God. Some people have taken this the wrong way. It's not that physical things are not important or that God is not present in physicality. No, it's that we can't make God. We can't control God. Often in times of Israel's unfaithfulness, they turn to statues to control or to define God, to box God in and say, this is who God is. We don't get to do that. When we go through difficult times, I think one of the first things we try to do, okay, I'll speak for myself here. One of the first things I try to do is turn to control. <laughs> what is, how do I make this thing happen? How do I fix it? How do I control it? Unfortunately, control, ultimate control in our lives is antithetical to trust. We trust in God. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, or you shall not take the Lord your God's name in vain. This isn't about cussing. You may have heard this in reference to uh, saying certain words. This is about God's will or God's reputation. We like to do as humans, we like to do things and then say we're doing them in the Lord's name. In fact, throughout history, there have been a lot of awful things done in the name of God. As Christians, we're always called to, to make sure or to seek that our endeavors look like God as revealed in Christ. Don't try to take things that don't look like Jesus or like God and put God's name on them. Don't do that. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember that God doesn't depend on your work. God is working when you're not working. By stopping for a day, we're saying God is our source. I'm not even my ultimate source. Me working hard enough is not what keeps the world spinning on its axis. I'm dependent on God. Honor your father and mother. Why? To honor one's parents is to honor God's faithfulness in bringing you into the world and sustaining you to this point. In our society, I think we have pretty little respect for our elders compared to a lot of other cultures. God's people are to live in such a way that we honor the gift that God has given us in our elders. What if you have horrible parents? What if your parents were awful or harmful? Well, there are times in all relationships, even good ones, where we have to set boundaries. It's possible to honor one's parents even if one has to create physical separation from them because trust has been broken. So no matter how bad our parents were or are, we can honor that they were part of what God brought you here, part of God's faithfulness. We can honor that. You shall not murder. This recognizes that relationships can sometimes get so fraught that one person might actually want to kill another person. We might think about turning the command the other way, right? Am I giving life rather than taking life? We may not get to the point where we want to actually take someone else's life, but we do in subtle ways often try to snatch their dignity or their humanity. How we treat other people matters. It matters that God's people are a life-giving people and not a life-taking people. You shall not commit adultery. Don't have affairs. Why? Because God's design for marriage was always to reflect God's love for the world. When we don't model that, when we're unfaithful, 
we mar that reflection. Now notice that so many of God's commandments are about faithfulness when things are difficult. Commitment to faithfulness is central to our story. Why? Why are we supposed to be faithful? Because that's who God is. God is the faithful one. He is faithful to us. You shall not steal. Part of this is recognizing we're in this together. You're in this with your neighbor, this thing we call life. Your neighbor's oxen are his livelihood. Her sheep and goats, his olives and his grain are her means of sustaining the family. You imperil the family when you take them. So life is not just about you and your needs. It's about us. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. We need to be a people and are called to be a people who see and describe the world rightly. Our words mean something in the world. The old saying, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive, is this image of a web that's being created. We have the opportunity when we speak things into the world, we have the opportunity to create something that is true and good, or we can weave counterfeits in our lives. And you shall not covet. Be content with what you have. This particular commandment, the last one, is really fascinating because it appears to have to do, all the other ones seem like they have kind of like a, it's like a thing you do or you don't do. This one seems to have to do more with a heart disposition than with one's behavior. So don't think your life would be better if you had your neighbor's wife or servants or animals. Contentment and thankfulness are so central to our faith. God has blessed us. He is our God and in him we have all that we need. And I want to suggest that perhaps no commandment is more neglected today than this one. Interestingly, though, the only way to change somebody's heart disposition, the only way to change our heart disposition, may be through practices, intentional practices. We stop to give thanks. We pray. We reflect on what one is thankful for. And then we have postures of worship that orient the worshiper towards thanksgiving. Israel is given these guidelines, these laws, and they fail over and over again. That's the story. Other gods, false images, immorality, theft, murder, all of it. God's kids fail to live out what it means to be part of the family of God. They were called to imitate God and they failed to do so. They allowed other gods and their own impulses to be their law. And yet, God loves them so much that he does not give up on his people. In fact, the whole point of the law has been God's love the entire time. The intention of the law is flourishing and wholeness and healing. And this is what Jesus embodied. As you look at the life of Jesus, you can see Jesus consistently and almost systematically reminding Israel of the purpose of the law and therefore their calling. He does it over and over again. So one of the most obvious examples is when it comes to the Sabbath. There's some Pharisees and they become very angry because Jesus is healing on the Sabbath day. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath day. And their point makes sense. Okay, God told us to set aside a day. We're not supposed to work. And that's what makes us different as a people. We obey God. We're not like those Gentiles. But Jesus says the whole point of the Sabbath, that commandment, was wholeness and healing. That's the whole thing. I'm healing on the Sabbath because that's what it's for. 
You're observing the law, but you forgot the whole thing. I wonder if that's the reason why Jesus hangs around with prostitutes and people with bad reputations related to their sexual lives. The whole point of do not commit adultery was to remind God's people we're to be faithful because he's been faithful to us. And if you just reject those who have broken that commandment, you forgot the point. You're not being faithful. God loves you. God is faithful to you and God wants to restore you. Think about this guy, Zacchaeus, you know, the wee little man. He was a thief. Jesus calls him out with love. He restores his dignity and Zacchaeus repents and is transformed. Think about those crucified next to Jesus on the cross. They were murderers. As one of them acknowledges Jesus, Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And in a deeper way, we can say God not only heals those people, he does, but he actually steps into their place. He becomes the one rejected as if he were unfaithful when he wasn't. He becomes cast out. He brings about reconciliation by standing in solidarity with them and dying with and for sinners. Jesus says over and over again to the leaders, you guys remembered the law, but you forgot the point. So therefore, you're not actually keeping the law. In our gospel reading, Jesus tells the parable of a landowner century, whenever you heard landowner and vineyard, you heard God in Israel. That's what he's speaking of here. And there's a fence or a wall that's built, and the landowner builds that, and it's probably the Torah or the law from which the Ten Commandments are central. The Torah was designed for God's people to bear fruit in the world, to be a light in the world. So that, that's what this fence was for. It was for that, the fruit bearing, the light of the world. Well, this vineyard has been rooted in a land. That's what it says here. It's rooted in the land. That's the promised land given by God. And then there's a watchtower that's been built, which we think probably represents the temple, light of the world. The vineyard has been given under supervision of these tenants who are in charge, and they represent the Judean authorities at the time. The landowner then, from, from a distance, sends his servants to collect the fruit. So God goes to see if Israel is being faithful, if Israel is being fruitful, bearing fruit. The servants who are given the task, the servants he sends, represent the prophets who are preparing the way for his coming. But the prophets show up, the servants show up at the vineyard, and the tenants beat up the servants. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people reject the prophets. We still do that today. So the landowner sends more servants. God sends more prophets. And the tenants do the same thing that they did before. Finally, the landowner thinks, if I send my only son, they have to respect him. So the landowner sends his very son to them. Yet the tenants kill even the landowner's son out of a desire to take his inheritance. It says, so they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Jesus is describing what is happening as he has come into the world. Israel has rejected the prophets. Now they are rejecting him and they are about to kill him. In fact, Jesus' story even foreshadows the place of his death because it says the son is dragged outside the vineyard and killed. Jesus himself was killed at Golgotha outside of Jerusalem. 
In Leviticus 14, this is how when someone was deemed unclean, this is what you did. If they were unfaithful or if they, they were unclean, you would drag them outside of the camp and kill them. That's what's going on here. The Judean authorities assume that when judgment happens, it's going to leave them in charge. So they're sitting there going, God is going to come judge. He's going to overthrow all of our enemies, and we're going to be there in charge of everything. The Messiah will dominate and restore Israel to a great empire and defeat all of our enemies. They have a misunderstanding of judgment. And because of that, they're not open to God's presence with them in Jesus. So therefore, judgment is actually falling on them. Jesus asks them what the landowner will do with those tenants. And he kind of sets them up. So this is one of Jesus' most transparent parables, I think. <laughs> it's pretty obvious what he means. So he goes, so uh, hypothetically, if this were to happen, what do you think the landowner would say to these guys who are in charge? That's a, that's a strong paraphrase there. But so they say this, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Now, we can assume that these new tenants are the ones who respond in trust to Jesus. The tax collectors, the sinners, the humble, the poor, they enter the kingdom of God not because they've proven themselves, but because of their simple trust. The authorities, on the other hand, have cut themselves off from the power of reconciliation because of their failure to trust. Jesus then does something interesting. He makes an abrupt transition. In our English translation, we go, what's going on? He's talking about a vineyard and a son. And then he, he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So we go, what? Stone, son. Well, the word stone or the word son in Hebrew is ben. The word stone is eben. So Jesus is making this like poetic connection uh, with these two words that sound a lot alike. So he's saying the sun, even in our language, it's kind of that way. You take away the T and the E and stone is sun, right? But so, he, so he's kind of saying like the, the sun has become the stone. The sun has become the center of everything. The sun has become the one that some people trip on and some people found as the, find as their foundation. It's a quote from Psalm 18. Jesus is speaking about himself. It says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. So while the world goes in one direction, seeking after our own needs, often bound to the laws of our own desires or to false gods, Jesus, it says, stands in the way. It becomes this stumbling block that gets in the way of all of these things that are false. Everything that stands in the way of Christ is revealed as hollow. It's reduced to nothingness. The truth is, we as Christians are often like the chief priests in this account. We've become demanding who's in and who's out. The world doesn't like, and we don't like, the idea of a God who completely welcomes everyone by grace through faith, a salvation that's completely free. We don't like that. We keep wanting to put conditions on it or put things in the way. But the good news is those, even those who attempt to stand in the way of the kingdom are unable to stop it. Even those of us who reject Jesus 
when we reject Jesus, we don't stop his faithfulness. He died even for those who rejected him. In the scriptures, we find a consistent pattern. It's often in the in-between seasons that God is most at work forming his people. These times that were on the edge, like Israel was in the desert, not knowing where their next meal was coming from. These places on the edge can sometimes be a gift because they require trust. The truth is we're always on the edge. <laughs> we can lull ourselves into thinking that um, we're just completely secure and we're fine, but we're always living on the edge, dependent on God, whether we feel secure in our situation or not. Sometimes it's easier to see God's hand in our lives than other times. So when God's people are crossing the Red Sea because of a miracle, they see God's work in front of them and they just step into it. They walk into it. When they're eventually in the promised land, they look around and there's so much to be thankful for where they are right in front of them. But what about in the desert with all the wild animals? God is there too, but his presence often feels more sporadic and opaque. These are the times that require trust. And it's in these moments that God does something unique. God's kingdom is received by those who put their trust in him. It's not received by those who are preoccupied by who is in and who's out. It's not received by those clinging on for control. It's received by those who know their ultimate dependence. Jesus is the faithful one, and he leads his people into faithfulness. The grace of the kingdom is so often rejected by a world that is built on status and separation. Grace is the ultimate stumbling block. The good news is that Christ died even for those who killed him and those who reject grace today. May we know the one who has delivered us and be formed by his faithfulness. May we not be content with being defined by the ways of the world, choosing instead to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and sharing in his sufferings. And may we be scandalized by God's welcoming grace so that it is marvelous in our eyes. Amen.